Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Our text for today comes from 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 5 through 7. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with the timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, before we hop into the message this morning, I just want to um, share with you some good news that is, uh, well, it's, there's no bad news associated with this. It's only good news. The good news that is purely good news is that Ashley and I will not be here next week. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. Uh, uh, but we have a special guest speaker, my good friend, a, a gentleman I was on staff with when I was a pastor in Des Moines, uh, Dr. Reverend Steve Beeman will be with us. Uh, Dr. Beeman is a wonderful guy. He's a good friend of mine, and he's, uh, he's a very entertaining speaker, so uh, to say the least. So I would encourage you uh, to uh, make attending church next week a priority. Uh, it's going to be a really good Sunday, and it's always good to roll out the red carpet for special guests, isn't it? So we want to make sure we do that next week. Dr. Beeman's going to be here, and he's going to be great, and he's going to be talking about um, how King David points us to King Jesus, and that'll be a really good message. But today, we are talking about, uh, in the second week of our series, we're calling Son of Jesse, Son of God, about the ways in which King David was a warrior. King David was a warrior. Are any of you familiar with this? King David was a military genius in the scriptures. There is a lot of talk when it comes to David about all these different aspects of him, his character and of his leadership. But uh, one of his primary credentials, one of the things that comes to the fore when you read the story of, of King David multiple times is you come to the realization that right at the top of that list of ways of defining David was that he was a great military leader. You see, David first comes to prominence because of a fight he had with a giant, right? He has a fight with a giant Philistine named Goliath. Uh, and it's that victory that he has over Goliath that kind of springboards him into his public life and public prominence in Israel. And just a cursory look then at, the, at, at, the, at David's life, you realize how important it was that David was this military ruler, that he was a prominent warrior who uh, not just defended Israel, but actually expanded Israel's borders. We have a, a quick slide. I don't know if you'll be able to see real clearly, but there's a slide we, of the map of Israel at the time of David. Do we have that? There it is. Sorry, it's a little unclear. But you see there that the dark red is where David was the primary uh, land of Israel. And then the lighter colors of red are all areas that David expanded the rule or the, the influence of Israel in his day. One thing I want you to notice from this map is that it wasn't a particularly large piece of land that David ruled over. And the, and the area of land that, that David fought uh, to defend was honestly in the 
and the scale of his day, not a particularly large, uh, not a particularly large landmass. It most certainly didn't compare to the to the big uh, superpowers of his day, like Egypt or the different superpowers like Assyria or Babylon that came from the Mesopotamian uh, area of the world. But what was interesting about this land that David defended and that he fought to expand and protect was that it was incredibly strategic. This land that David fought over was incredibly strategic, this small parcel of land along the Mediterranean Sea, because, precisely because, it connected uh, Africa and Egypt up into the east, which was the, the Mesopotamian powers, and into the west. And so Israel was this um, very important kind of uh, trade route was basically where it was. And so it was, it, was a, it was a part of the world that a lot of people wanted to control, which is why David had to fight so often to defend it. This is why Solomon, David's successor and son, becomes so wealthy, precisely because he, is on, he was, was on one of the most prominent trade routes. And David, through his uh, military prowess, was able to solidify and stabilize this region in such a way is that Solomon could begin making money off of that stability because no one wants to trade in a part of the world where their stuff might get stolen, correct? But if there's a stable government in place, people want to begin to use that part of the world to make money for themselves. And Solomon and the people of Israel glean the benefits of that. Now, David's primary task as uh, the king of Israel and uh, was to be a defender of Israel, to be one who defeated the enemies of Israel, to conquer the enemies of the people of God. And this was absolutely established in the mind of any Israelite. One of the primary responsibilities of the king and specifically the responsibility and, and prowess of King David. He was the greatest warrior that Israel ever knew. And he, def and he defended them and defeated them, uh, defended them from enemies and defeated numerous enemies that they were really surrounded by on all sides. In the passage for today, we, heard, we hear about the notoriety that David begins to get because of his military prowess. He defeats Goliath, and then Saul, the, the king, begins to send David out on these military escapades, and he becomes very, very effective on these uh, military excursions. And so people begin to sing the song, Saul has slayed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. One of David's primary crowning military achievements was the... Uh, and one thing that we see is that his primary... Uh, military achievements was the conquest of the city of Jerusalem. If you, uh, the, the city of Jerusalem that we now know as, as the center, the primary city in Israel, was not when David came to power uh, under the control of Israel. It was actually under con the control of a group of people called the Jebusites, and yet David wanted the city of Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem was a strategic city. It was a fortified city that no one believed anybody could actually take because it was up on a hill. It was very well defended. It had big walls. And the Jebusites actually believed that it was, it was 
that it was not possible that David would conquer them evil because of the prowess of their city. And we read about the story of David actually going and conquering Jerusalem in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. This is almost immediately after the, di the different tribes of Israel uh, select David as their king. As soon as he is, a formally, is formally made the king of Israel, he goes almost immediately in the text to, Jer to Jerusalem to conquer it. And here's what we read about that conquest in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. It says this, The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off, they thought. David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is in the city of David, uh, which is the city of David, excuse me. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he, in it, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord Almighty was with him. So the city that was thought to be so well fortified that no one was ever going to take it, that, that was so well fortified that even people with significant physical impairment could defend it, David, through his cunning and through his military, uh, because he's a wizard of a military strategist, was able to send his soldiers up an aqueduct, <coughs> excuse me, into the city to take it. Coincidentally, we have archaeological evidence of this very aqueduct that David and his men went up. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm correct, I think there's even some type of inscription in that aqueduct that, that commemorates David and his men uh, using it to take the city. But the point being of all of this is that David was a great warrior. Now, that's David, right? But the point of this series is to see the ways in which David points us to Jesus, right? That's why we're calling this series Son of Jesse, Son of God. Because David, in some sense, is a precursor or a picture of, uh, that points or an arrow that points to Jesus. And last week we talked about how at the very beginning of the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is said to be the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of David. And Matthew makes quite clear that Jesus is this very special Messiah, this one in the line of David. He's actually a kind of new David who, like David, will deliver his people, will, will protect and deliver them. And and in the, in the narrative, as we, as we read it, we understand that this Messiah, this, this one who comes as the son of David, isn't just going to establish this kingdom in this small swath of land along the Mediterranean. Rather, this new king is going to establish a universal or an everlasting kingdom. So he is, in some sense, a greater David. Luke's gospel tells us that uh, upon the shoulders of this Messiah, the son of David, the, the governments of the world will sit, which is a big deal. And implicit in the assumption that the Messiah would be a great, uh, that, that he, the governments of the world would sit on his shoulders is the idea, right, 
that he's going to be a great warrior in the same way, or at least in the same mode that David was a great warrior. And as we read through the Gospels, when Jesus is singled out by the people as being the son of David, there is always in the narrative this implicit expectation that if Jesus is the Messiah, if he is the, one, if he is the son of David, if he is the, this new David who's going to come and defeat God's enemies, that he would militarily and politically deliver God's people, that he was going to have to be a great warrior in the same way that David was a great warrior. It makes sense, right? If you're going to deliver God's people afresh and anew, then you need to marshal an army in order to do it. And you need to have uh, quite a bit of cunning and skill if you're going to do it too, because the armies uh, of Rome were quite powerful and notable at this time. And, but nowhere is it more clear that Jesus is singled out as being this great uh, Messiah or anointed one in the line of David. Nowhere is it more clear that this is what was in people's minds when they were looking at Jesus than in the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is the city of David, the city that David conquered. Jesus, in the, in the story of the triumphal entry, is riding up on a donkey before the, the celebration of the Passover. And the people, as Jesus is riding up to this great city of David, are singing a song that lauds Jesus as this new king, right? They're, they're saying, this is the one. He is going to do it. This is the guy in the line of David who's going to do and fulfill everything that the scriptures say. He is going to be this Messiah, this deliverer, this anointed one, David's son, who will reign. And it's about to start. It's about to begin because he's headed up into, into David's city. And where else would the revolution begin other than in the city that David first went to to conquer, to establish his kingdom? It all makes sense, right? But as soon as Jesus gets to the city, he doesn't conquer it, does he? He doesn't marshal an army when he gets to the city. He does something different than that, in fact. And we read about what he does after he enters the city of Jerusalem in Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. And this is what we read. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Verse 14. The blind and the lame come to him at the temple, came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have been called forth. Uh, that have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. What did you do? So, where he spent the night, excuse me, sometimes my notes get blended into the scriptures and it looks like they belong. So, what's happening here? What's, what's happening in this story? And why does this story so implicitly, implicitly reference back to the story of David's taking of the city of Jerusalem? 
You see, when Jesus gets to the temple, he does not drive out the Romans. What does he do? He overturns the tables of the money changers and angers not the foreign occupiers, but the, the religious establishment of Jerusalem. And the passage tells us one more thing, and I think this is so important because it connects specifically David's conquest of Jerusalem to, to Jesus' entrance of Jerusalem. And it's found in verse 14. And it, it says this, The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. Do you hear the connection between the blind and the lame in 2 Samuel and the blind and the lame in this passage in Matthew 21? Uh, it just for reference, to reference back, in, in, in 2 Samuel we read this, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's, what? Enemies. That is why they say the blind and the lame will not enter this place. What is this passage of Scripture telling us about Jesus in comparison to David? That's the question. Here's what Richard Hayes, the New Testament scholar, says this is happening in this linkage between these two stories. He says, the literally blind and lame of Jesus' time, rather than being excluded from the Lord's house are welcomed in, welcomed in and healed by Jesus. Thus we find again a transformative sur, a surpassing of the scriptural precursor text. Whereas David uh, nearly, uh, merely, excuse me, subdued the blind and the lame, this new son of David, David establishes his sovereignty in a way that embraces and heals them. You see, Jesus does not come to Jerusalem to conquer. He comes to heal, right? Jesus comes to heal. And he transforms the picture of Israel's hope from a military warrior in a way that no one expected. Literally, no one expected. In fact, the real reason Jesus has come to Jerusalem is not to conquer the city. It's to be crucified outside of its gates. Jesus will wage war. He will wage war, but he will not wage war in, against the, the political powers of his day. He will wage war against the principalities and powers of sin and death. He will wage war on the devil, but he will do it by laying down his life, not by actually taking the city. Now, Here's the tension in all of this. The people in Jesus' day could not, for the life of them, see this switch, could see this change. And how could they, right? How, how could they have seen Jesus doing what he was doing and understand it, right? We have the, we have the benefit of hindsight, right? 2,000 years removed with the scriptures. And even we have kind of a hard time understanding how these two ideas can blend together, let alone the people who had this grand expectation of a Messiah who would come and deliver them. And yet, they, 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 they're just walking and living in this tension. Their expectation is for Jesus to be like David, to be a great warrior just like he is. And Jesus comes on the scene saying, yes, I am David's son, but rather than bringing war, I bring healing. 
I'm a warrior for healing, as it were. And the people can't see it. And the question then this morning is, what do you do when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? What do you do when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? Because we all bring our expectations to Jesus, right? We all have expectations about the way that Jesus should conduct himself in and around my life, don't we? Jesus, you should be about the business of doing for me what I want you to do for me, right? Jesus, here's the way it should look. Here's how things should go. I should not suffer, right? There should never be any slick spots in the parking lot when I'm walking to or from my car that I would slip on, right? That everything should kind of be the way it should be. And when things don't match that reality, we can often... We can often enter a space of despondency where we go, why are things not the way they should be? I thought Jesus was here to make everything good all the time, right? Jesus has won the victory over sin and death. Why are things still hard? The truth of the matter is is that we run into the same tension that the disciples ran into and that these early uh, first century followers of Jesus ran into, this tension of going, why is Jesus not meeting my expectations for the way this life should go, right? Jesus is constantly in the Gospels subverting the expectations of the crowds of people who are following him, isn't he? He's constantly uh, zigging where the people think he's going to zag, and they can't quite track him. And I think it's important to, and I think it's a really important point for us as followers of Jesus in our world, that Jesus will not conform to every expectation we have of him. If he did, he would not be God. He would be our own personal, you know, helper, you know, our own personal little friend, and he would be subsumed under our will and our desire, but Jesus will not be subsumed under our will and desire. You see, we must trust that Jesus will be for us what we need him to be, not what we want him to be. Jesus comes to the people of Israel, right? And they want a military ruler. They want a deliverer in the same way that David was a deliverer. And Jesus is a deliverer, and he was a savior, but he was not that in any way that they actually wanted. And we know that because they all end up leaving him by the end. By the time he's, by the time he's crucified, there's basically no one left because, because he wasn't what they thought they needed, what they thought they needed. He was being for them what he knew they needed. And in the same way, Jesus wants to be for you and for me what he knows we need, not what we want him to be. Because if you had your way and Jesus was always for you what you wanted him to be, well, that wouldn't be good at all. Because we're fallen and partial. We have, we have almost zero sense of very often what is good for us. But Jesus always has our best interest in mind. He is always concerned that we, uh, for us, in a way that is actually for our betterment and not just for our comfort. You see, Jesus wants to be for us what we need him to be, 
And we need to learn, as followers of Jesus, to trust that fact. And trust is one of the hardest things in the world, isn't it? Trust turns out to be very, very difficult. Especially when the, when the, when the, when the situation of our lives doesn't seem to be going the way we want it to go. But trust is key. And as we lean in to Jesus, as we trust him in the midst of difficult and often confusing spaces in our lives, what we find is that in those moments of, of confusion, in those discombobulated moments, what we find in those times is that we can see Jesus for what he is and what he will be for us in the midst of those difficult times. You see, Jesus wants to be for you what you need, not what you want. And while that is one of the hardest things to get our minds around, it is one of the most important lessons to learn as we follow him in this life. And so what, do, what is it that Jesus wants to be for us? What is it that Jesus wants to be for us? Primarily, he wants to be your savior, and he wants to be your healer. Right? He wants to be your savior, and he wants to be your healer. He wants to save you from the powers of sin and death. He wants to save you from the powers of darkness. He wants to save you and me very often from the tyranny of our own opinions. Knowing full well that what we think in the directions we have designed for our lives are not the best way for us. But in order to follow Jesus on this path, we have to learn to trust. Because if we don't trust Jesus, we will just go our own way. And we'll do the things that look good in our eyes to do. And when that happens, inevitably we will get ourselves in trouble. Uh, last Tuesday, I had to get a new, uh, we got a new washer and dryer at our house. Uh, we got it on Facebook Marketplace because it's cheaper and we didn't want to buy a new one. Um, and I have a problem. I, I, I'm a fairly handy person. I install things from time to time. Um, but I despise directions, in it, uh, all directions. I can't, I can't do it. It's not that I don't think that the directions have knowledge that I don't have. I assume that they do. Uh, I'm just too lazy and a little too dyslexic to actually go through the process of reading them. So. Uh, I had, to, I had to get a new plug because there was a three-prong plug for the dryer and it had to be converted to a four-prong plug to the dryer, which just means it needs a ground electrical lesson for you this morning. And, uh, and Ashley sent me a picture of the plug because I asked her to take a picture and send it to me. And uh, I didn't pay attention to the picture that she, <laughs> she took because why would you ask your wife to do something and then actually look at the thing that she sent you that helps you do the thing? And so I bought the wrong plug, and I installed it, and I was like, went to plug in the dryer, and I realized it was the wrong one. And I just had this like flash of like, when I don't follow the directions that my wife sends me, that I specifically ask her to send me so that I can do the thing right, things don't go well, right? <laughs> things don't always go well. And, it's, and it takes literally your entire Saturday to install a dryer. But, Here's the thing. There, Jesus wants to be, pardon me, the, the directions of your life. 
But we don't want him to be very often. We don't want to take him up on his offer all that often, do we? We want to go our own way. We want to do what is best in our eyes. We don't want to submit our lives to somebody who has a little bit more to say to us than we like to think he does. And this is never more clear than when Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says things like, love your enemies. Right? Or, and pray for those who persecute you. It's never more clear than when, than when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we go, oh man, I don't want to be poor in spirit. I don't, I don't want to love my enemies. I don't want to go the extra mile. I don't want to do these things because they don't feel in the moment as though they are the right thing to do. And yet, Jesus does not, will not be for you what you want him to be. He will be for you what you need. And time and time again in the scriptures, we have a picture of a God who is constantly doing for the world what it needs him to do, not what it wants him to do. Remember the story when, uh, when Jesus is talking to Peter, and Jesus begins to talk about how he's going to Jerusalem, and he's going to die, right? He's going to, he's going to die on the cross, because this is, what, this is what the world needs him to do. And Peter says, Lord, may it never be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, right? Because what Peter wanted was not going to be the thing that Peter needed. And Jesus knows this. And he knows that any distraction from his purpose or his calling to be the savior of the world is a demonic distraction. And he doesn't want to give in to it. And yet we go merrily through our lives believing that our take on the world is the right take on the world. And it simply is very often not. Very often it is not. And so today, what, what I hope that we can take from this story, other than the fact that Jesus is obviously a better version of David, he's one who fights for us, but he fights in a way that looks so different than the way that the world fights, doesn't he? But, the, but that we take from this reality, this, this one through-going thing, that you and I can trust Jesus. And if he is leading you to places, and if he is leading you in ways that feel like out of step with your desires, that might be exactly where you need to be. It might just be exactly where you need to be. I can't help but think, I can't help but think that, that the life of a disciple of Jesus is very often quite unnerved, a little odd, because we are learning, in a sense, a whole new way of being. We are learning what it means to be citizens of a different kingdom. And this is why disciples of Jesus are said to be so different in the New Testament and in the surrounding cultures, because they are learning how to belong to a whole new people, a whole new kingdom, a whole new type of king. 
And when we follow Jesus and we learn to trust him well, we learn the vocabulary of this kingdom in such a way as we begin to learn different. And as we settle our lives into this kingdom, we find in that place that it, w- that it is truly who we were and what we're, we were created for. But unless we can trust Jesus enough in those moments when it feels like he's not doing for me what I want him to do for me, we'll never get to the place that we learn to live within the rhythms of God's kingdom. We'll never get to that place. And so this morning, my hope and my prayer for each and every one of us is that we would learn to trust Jesus in that way. When things feel odd, when things feel like they're not working out the way we think they should work out, can we learn to trust Jesus in the midst of those places? Can we trust that Jesus knows the way even when we don't see the way? Can we trust that Jesus has the keys to the car when we don't know how we're going to get from point A to point B? Can we trust that Jesus knows what our lives should look like more accurately than we do. Would you stand with me this morning? And so, my prayer is that we would learn to trust King Jesus. And I don't know exactly where you are in this life. I have a feeling that there are many in the room that are in a position where you're like, I don't know where things are headed, right? The, the plan I had feels like it got rerouted and, or I'm on a path, but I don't see what the next step looks like. Um, there's people in my life who I don't know where their lives are headed and it's giving me anxiety. I don't know. But I know that for all of us, this this discipline of learning to trust that Jesus has our best interest in mind is a natural part of the Christian life. And there are moments where we just need to say, Jesus, I trust you. And so this morning, would you do that with me? Just in the attitude of prayer, wherever you are, just in the quietness of your heart, would you say, Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I trust you to lead me where you think I should go. Jesus, I trust you to be the Lord of my life. And Jesus, I trust that you are leading me in a way that is best for me, even if it is not necessarily what I think is best for me. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And we know, God, that we all encounter in this life difficulties, trials, struggles, confusing circumstances, God. And it is in the middle of all of these trials and struggles and difficulties that we can, so, we can just so often cling to our own perceptions or our own desires or our own internal sense of what we should or should not do. Father, would you help us to quiet our hearts enough that we could uh, learn to trust you in the midst of that uncertainty? that we could learn, Jesus, to trust that you have our best interests in mind and that you are leading us along good paths. That like we heard last week, Psalm 23, that you lead us beside quiet waters. That you have our best interests in mind and that you 
are doing a masterwork of weaving our lives into a story that brings you glory and brings us fulfillment and purpose. Jesus, we just confess again, afresh and anew, that we trust you this morning. We trust you as you lead us. We trust you as you walk beside us. We trust you as you, you walk before us and you prepare a way where we don't see there's a way. Jesus, would you help us to be your kingdom people? And would you help us to see that you are one who can be trusted? Jesus, we love you. We love you. And we ask that you would help us to love you more. We pray it all in your name. Amen. And amen. And amen. Amen. Well, I hope you have a good day, that you watch the Super Bowl and that uh, Joe Burrow loses. Would you go today in the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Just him. He's just got to lose.